This is an RNZ podcast. Spectators are being shut out of all Olympic venues in Tokyo as the highly contagious Delta variant of COVID-19 spreads through the city. But one thing Japanese sports fans can look forward to is Japan's top sports star competing for a country at the Games, world tennis number two, Naomi Osaka. Now, she's currently not at Wimbledon, where the finals wrap up this weekend, because she's taking time out for her mental health. And it's a decision she explained in her own words in Time magazine this week in the form of a personal essay for the magazine's Olympic preview edition. The issue came to a head, though, during the French Open last month, where she cited the media as a major reason. To News Talk ZB Sport, Victoria Azarenka has urged Naomi Osaka to change her stance on avoiding media conferences at the French Tennis Open, but says the media also have a responsibility. The world number two carried out her promise to boycott any post-match analysis after her opening round win at Roland Garros and received a $20,000 fine. Now that fine was a small change for her, but Naomi Osaka copped criticism for that, partly because she said she didn't see the need to front up to people who doubt her, and that rubbed the sporting media up the wrong way. There's an obligation there for my mind. Yeah, You have to be, um, the media's a conduit there. I mean, yes, you can go through social media to address your fans, etc., but you've been put there, and Nadal addressed this actually before the tournament, uh, that uh, that is, uh, you know, they, they wouldn't be where they are, not necessarily because of media, but the media is a conduit for building the sport. News Talk ZB sports host Andrew Alderson, and there he was talking to a non-sport host, Kate Hawksby, who didn't agree. Why is it she gets penalised when you could argue perhaps they need to reframe the rules around how the press behave? Well, that was before Naomi Osaka withdrew from the tournament altogether, citing her struggle with depression since 2018, and she apologised for not making her condition clearer earlier. But even after she did, not every commentator seemed sympathetic. For example, on Morning Report, the show's go-to guy for big tennis tournaments, Dave Worsley, said this. She needs to understand that it is a requirement of her job that has made her the richest female athlete in the world for the last two years. But she just needs to be helped and they need to be given good advice. And the media people at these Grand Slams need to actually guide the questions and guide the players. So really, it's a miscommunication the whole way through. Now, Dave Worsley's online bio says he's a tennis communications manager. So no surprise, perhaps he'd take a dim view of Naomi Osaka's failure to communicate as expected by the business of professional tennis. The Herald on Sunday was, to mix sporting metaphors, in Naomi Osaka's corner in its main editorial. Osaka can't expect to avoid media attention and scrutiny, but she has the right to question the interview treadmill that top players currently face in the hope of finding some realistic middle ground. But would the Herald be as happy to cut Naomi Osaka the same slack if its owner had paid through the nose for the rights to put tennis on TV? The French Open is exclusively live on Sky TV here, and its presenters Goran Paladin and Kirsty Stanway delivered a very different verdict on their Sky Sports chat show called The Verdict. Are all blacks have to front media before and after? You cannot get away from this. This is the business. Broadcasters pay massive rights, massive amounts of money for the rights, and that comes with access to athletes because people at home, and we're fans as well, we're consumers, that's what we want. Yeah, and uh, we are the number one stakeholder. As a, as a fan, what do we want? We want access to the players. We want to know exactly what happened out there on the court, on the field, wherever they're playing their chosen sport. 
But leaving aside those commercial obligations, what about the public interest and accountability? While major sports tournaments are licensed events, they're also public events of public interest, and most post-match press conferences don't matter much, but they can. For instance, journalists like the former cyclist Paul Kimmage and David Walsh got Lance Armstrong's denials of doping on the record in press conferences when there was no other way to get him to answer questions about it, and they ended up being pretty damning when the truth came out. Likewise, British Olympic hero Sir Mo Farah has had to answer awkward questions about his association with people linked to doping and unethical medical conduct in athletics. But on scoop.co.nz, Gordon Campbell pointed out that New Zealand's politicians could offer the answer. Ministers often decline requests for an interview and issue a statement instead later on. And so far... No cabinet minister has ever been fined or threatened with expulsion from the executive wing for ducking a live interview or for not holding a press conference. So maybe Naomi Osaka and other athletes, he reckoned, should be allowed to do likewise. Caitlin Thompson writes for the tennis magazine Racket in New York, and she's sat through hundreds of tennis press conferences of the kind that Naomi Osaka has turned into a major issue for the sport. Well, Caitlin, a lot of noise in the media, even as far away in New Zealand, about this. But in the end, this is one very specific circumstance and one elite uh, tennis star. Is it really going to change the sport for good? I think it's the right question, and I actually think so. This has really struck a chord with a lot of people, especially outside of the sport. I think part of that has to do with the fact that Naomi Osaka is an athlete who she's speaking to an audience of consumers, which is why she's such a brand um, friendly star and obviously now the world's highest paid female endorser uh, for an athlete, but also because she culturally really represents a lot of things that the tennis world can and should look to include, which is youth, globalism, and you know some nods to racial and, and social equity. So I think she's a leader. And I think whether she intended to or not, she's getting many, many, many more people and eyeballs on this sport in a way that is going to, I think, ultimately force some change within within our ecosystem, hopefully for the better. Well, that's what I wonder, though, because the question is being asked here, is this the end of press conferences in sport? Um, and does sport now have to adapt better to take account of the mental health of athletes, particularly younger ones? But is it really about that? Isn't it more actually about player power? We've seen in other sports like football, for example, the authorities were desperate to keep any kind of political expression out of the game or gestures or anything like that. And they've had to wilt in the face after Black Lives Matter of uh, teams and national sides all around the world uh, wanting to make a statement on the pitch. Isn't this actually more in the realm of that, that players now hold the power? It's not really about press conference behaviour by journalists like you or uh, Mm -hmm. the mental health of elite athletes? I mean, for the record, Colin, my behavior in press conferences is uh, unimpeachable. I'll just have you know that. (laughs) Um, Yes, I think it is about player power. And again, whether she intended to or not, I think Naomi Osaka now has a bit of a track record. You saw last summer when she was acting in solidarity with the fight for racial equity that a lot of the NBA players took up. She effectively halted an entire tournament in a boycott and forced the tennis world essentially to its knees and really to to reckon with it whether they wanted to or not. And keep in mind, tennis is a sport that can be very pro-clutching and can be very traditionalist, but has actually been on the right side of history with a lot of progressive notions, LGBT inclusion, racial inclusion, gender equity, or something close to it. Um, So I think the sport really has an interesting moment here. But I think the way you're contextualizing it within player power is really the relevant way to understand it, because now between their platforms, social uh, sort of footprints and and larger 
ability to connect with an audience that doesn't need the traditional mediums of the tournaments or even the press within those sort of tennis ecosystems, we're seeing now the ability that they have to reach a larger and more influential group of people. And understanding player power um, is certainly something that, because it's an individual sport, this was bound to happen in some way. And I think this is not the worst way it could have happened, is, it, is maybe a, a better way to say that. It, it's curious, though. This, If we turn to this kind of media event that is the post-game press conference, most tennis players, I understand, even if they don't particularly enjoy them or find them mature, are more than happy to do them because they need them. It's exposure for their sponsor. They put on the hat and so on. Isn't this really about creation of content for the rights holders, the, broad, the, the, the commercial customers of the sports? And that's where the obligation comes in? You're absolutely right. And I also think these tennis players, unless you're very elite, they need the media more than the media needs them. And I think Naomi Osaka wouldn't be this person or have this platform were she not to have enjoyed a fairly robust and really enthusiastic press coverage, including our own, in the last few years. I mean, I think there's no tennis player who has risen to major prominence without some kind of apparatus uh, of the press behind them. And so she's able to earn and able to reach that platform, largely because of obviously what she's doing on court, but how she's also used that to sort of boomerang into a larger, a larger context. The press conference itself is not outdated. I think there's a very, very robust role for the press to play. And I think within the tennis ecosystem, the post-match press conference is usually attended by, and, and the people asking questions are usually print and digital journalists. So these are folks who tend to be creating a certain kind of coverage. There's another type of press that is layered onto it. And this is the one that is very, very valuable, as you mentioned, to the rights holders. In fact, it's part of their deals with the tournaments that they get access to the players for television broadcast. And in this particular circumstance, it was very interesting because Naomi Osaka's initial note announcing that she wouldn't necessarily be boycotting. I didn't read it as a boycott. I read it as more of a heads up, like I'm going to take the fine because the fine structure is in place and I don't have to do this. So I'm not going to because of you know my mental health reasons. It was not precluding her appearance on television. She did, after her first round win in uh, Roland Garros, attend to television broadcast networks in at least Japan and also did an on-court post-match interview with Fabrice Santoro. And so one of the things that I think the world is looking at is the press conference itself, which, as I said, provides a lot of utility and really gives a chance for serious journalists to get more than a soundbite, which is what you'll get on a television broadcast, but also is at times, part of some of the, you know, misogyny, outright racism, and, you know, certainly a lot of yahoos who can get into those rooms. The way those rooms are policed and the way credentials are are issued to those print and digital journalists is very outdated. And I can tell you that from personal experience, seeing the types of people who get into those rooms, a lot of times they're maybe working for a giant news outlet, but they have no tennis context. They don't understand the game. They have never covered tennis before. They do it only sort of as a moonlight. And they're the ones really looking for salacious stuff the players are fair to object to some of the stuff that they get asked in press. That is something that I very, very strongly feel like needs to sort of be modernized and improved. Yes, elsewhere I've, I've heard you describe some of the people you can encounter in these tennis press rooms as uh, bozos. Um, so <laughs> I, I guess, uh, and you were talking with the Irish uh, sports writer Ken Early and podcaster about uh, he had this theory that the bigger a tournament gets, 
uh, the more it draws in these non-expert um, journalists. So if it's an ATP tournament, as you say, it might be a handful of specialists. Once it gets to French Open level or in another sport, you know, the Football or Rugby World Cup or something like that, then all of a sudden you're going to get the kind of people who might ask the sort of things that have been read out lately as an indictment on tennis press conferences mm-hmm. like outright sexism in there. Yeah, I mean, or Eugenie Bouchard, who's, you know, obviously the Canadian star who made a big splash a couple of years ago, but has been a bit of a scant presence at the highest levels of the sport, you know, being asked to twirl, uh, asked about who she's dating, who she's taking to the Super Bowl as her date, you know, and and it's inappropriate at best, but it tends to be asked of the women, especially the ones who are sort of deemed attractive. And I would say, again, if you are a professional journalist, you tend to understand what's fair game and what's not. But I think when you do have a credentialing system that tends to grandfather a lot of folks in um, or, or pays deference to giant platforms as opposed to actually more knowledgeable and fresher, more culturally relevant platforms like a lot of podcasters or a lot of younger bloggers, there really is a discrepancy there in terms of knowledge, context, and what kind of coverage they're creating when the tournament is big. It's a little bit more Wild West, and I think that is something that I would like to see changed very much. Well, here in New Zealand, we have big sports like uh, rugby as a national winter game, cricket, the summer sport, and both of those having the players talk and create this content in these sort of set-piece press conferences is part of the package that drives uh, subscription television. Uh, But writing about tennis, it seems very particular individual sport. And you've even described it as sometimes a bit like Formula One in that the resources that flow into those uh, top players and their teams and their support structures, uh, like Roger Federer, the Williams sisters and so on, really gives them a huge competitive advantage. And that's why as they get older and older, they're still winning. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think one of the things that is coming out of this having some kind of unity, not only between the genders, but just generally among players to sort of say, okay, we have a vested interest in making sure everybody who's in an elite level here is able to afford the basics that will make the sport more competitive. So it's not just Roger Federer flying in on a private jet with a team of 10 and getting, you know, a hyperbaric chamber or Novak Djokovic or whomever, but also while he's playing somebody in the first round, who's, who's maybe driven, you know, hours and staying in a a, a motel as the prize money's increased and the endorsements, it's really only increased at the top, top, top echelon. And one of the ways I think unity could bring some real change here is saying, okay, there's a minimum amount of ranking and points that you need to sort of be in this pool of players. But once you're in that group, maybe shaving a little bit off the top in terms of what some of these fabulously wealthy players get to enjoy and using it to sort of bolster the the group of people, having agreements on schedules so that the season is a little bit shorter and easier on their bodies, having unified broadcasting rights so you don't have to chase down 18 different streamers to watch matches in the same tournament, which is what's happening to people in the U.S. now trying to watch Roland Garros. We have three separate apps that we somehow have to navigate between, all of which you have to pay for to be able to watch the same day's slew of matches. A difficult but doable slew of changes that could happen with a unified voice among the players. And I think the tournaments would be very smart and probably, frankly, very eager to come to the table to do that if it didn't feel like it was a bunch of tiny fiefdoms essentially combating each other for for all of this small pot. Fantastically great, you know. And I think for me, one of the things I look at, one of the things we try to do with the magazine is sort of point out point out how, because we're here to be constructive and, and at times disruptive, but not in a not provocation for its own sake, but rather to say, hey, look, other sports have figured this out. Other sports, like you mentioned, F1, have a unified body, have a now rules where, you know, Ferrari's not gonna put their thumb on the scale and be able to spend 
18 times the amount of the motor than Williams is, just so we have more interesting races to watch where the, the results aren't a foregone conclusion. I think that makes the sport stronger. Well, New Zealand cricket fans will feel your pain as you describe having to have uh, multiple subscriptions there to follow the French Open. But finally, Caitlin, if we were to go ahead, maybe, I don't know, the US Open of 2027, do you think you will still be in a room with the players having these press conferences, some of them attending it grudgingly, some not, or by then will it all be broken up? And um, if you want to hear uh, Coco Golf or um, Naomi Osaka speak, it'll be on uh, Naomi Osaka streaming.com, her own personal channel, um, or via her Insta feed or something like that. I mean, 2027 is hard to picture. We'll probably all be, you know, brains living in jars, flying our spaceships around, my hope. Yeah. Anyway, e- eating our meals in pill form term. and all of that. <laughs> exactly. Uh, living on terraformed Mars. But I think short of that, probably within the next two or three years, my hope is there's some basic push and pull between the tournaments and the players. And you'll probably be getting in those press conferences, a lot of forward promotion to the Coco de Goff documentary on Netflix or Amazon prime special series behind the scenes. Because right now you go on any streamer and you search for tennis, you know, at least in the States, you get a Boris Becker documentary in German from 2005. And that's about it. The sport really hasn't done a good enough job breaking down our borders. And so I'm hoping that within the press role within sport, it's still, remains a better but very vital organ that can help create personalities and create hunger for this amazing, you know, live sports experience. And then we also have players who are maybe further incentivized to create promotion for their side projects, all of which I would hope make the sport better with more interest. If you can get people interested and make them feel included and hopefully give them an easy way to experience it, they'll end up buying tickets, they'll end up buying rackets, they'll end up watching from the first ball struck to the last. But you have to get that audience engaged in a way that I think this conversation we're having right now, and then hopefully where the future goes with feature films and behind the scenes and you know individual stars, but those who still play very much within the tennis sandbox, granted a larger one, is, is a healthy ecosystem for the sport. And I see other sports doing it, and so that makes me feel optimistic. And hopefully in 2027, you won't be sitting next to some bozo in a press conference asking uh, a professional athlete who they're taking to the Super Bowl. <laughs> no, hopefully not, exactly. That's Caitlin Thompson, co-founder of tennis magazine Racket, talking to me there from New York.